This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Legal Talk Network and our show, Workers' Comp Matters. I'm your host, Alan Pierce. I practice workers' compensation law in Salem, Massachusetts, representing injured workers and their families. And today our show comes from the annual convention of Willig, the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group. We are at the Bacara Resort in Santa Barbara, California. And I'm very pleased to introduce my audience to Michael Galpern. Michael is the incoming president of Willig. He is the co-managing partner of the Locks Law Firm in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, with offices in Philadelphia and New York City. He is the chairman of the Wage and Hour Department of the Locks Law Firm. He's the past president of the New Jersey Association for Justice. And as I mentioned, he, as of this morning, is the current president of Willig. Michael specializes in an area of the law that is somewhat foreign to me and probably to most listeners of workers' comp matters, even though it is workers' compensation. The area of wage and hour, which deals with the compensation to workers, is outside of the realm of the injuries to workers who uh, suffer a loss in the workplace. And before we start, Michael, and again, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, and it's nice to be here. I, I am reminded of a cartoon which I wish I had cut out when I had seen it because it would be great for you to have in your office it was either in the New Yorker, it was a three-panel cartoon, and I apologize because trying to describe a cartoon is nowhere near as good as looking at it. But my memory of the cartoon is this. The first panel was a young, eager applicant in front of the boss who's hiring him for this job. And the, uh, the hiring person says, we offer four weeks vacation, we offer dental insurance, health insurance, tuition reimbursement, we have free daycare. And uh, we have a very liberal policy of uh, sick days and personal days. And the eager applicant in the second panel says, great, what's the salary? The third panel is salary? There is no salary. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think as a wage and hour guy, you probably recognize more than anybody that really how people are compensated for the labors, the work they perform for their employer is extremely important. That's the reason we work. We work to earn a living. So tell us a little bit about the whole field of wage and hour law. Sure. Well, thank you, and it's nice to be with you, Alan. The field of wage and hour law actually got its uh, starts in uh, the 1930s when Congress passed the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act. It was actually a job creation bill. And uh, to those who are not familiar with it, they would look at the, uh, perhaps look at the bill and think, how does this create jobs? It creates jobs by forcing employers to pay overtime, time and a half, to workers who are forced to work more than 40 hours a week. And an employer has a choice. If they're going to regularly subject and force their employees to work more than 40 hours a week, they have to pay them time and a half for the hours they worked over 40 hours, or they have to hire another worker. They can't have the benefit of both worlds. They can't force somebody to work 50 or 60 hours a week and make him or her work straight time. 
that's unfair to the worker, that's unfair to the worker's family, and that's unfair to the next job applicant who should be hired in that capacity. And from my limited experience in this field, that's pretty much reading about cases or hearing from colleagues about cases. I know you can have distinctions here as to who is required to be paid time and a half, management and non-management, and is there some area where the employers will call somebody management to avoid the time and a half, and how do you deal with that? Absolutely. Uh, The Fair Labor Standards Act, the FLSA, uh, requires the employee to be paid time and a half for each hour he or she works over 40 hours a week unless they fit into a certain exception. As you mentioned, managerial is one exception. But it's up to the employer, not the employee. It's up to the employer to prove that the employee fits within the exemption. So for instance, attorneys, doctors, scientists, those are professional or managerial uh, workers. They don't have to be paid overtime. But in these big box retail stores or these restaurants or these hotel chains and a myriad of other customer-oriented facilities where people are labeled a manager doesn't make them management. They have to fit within the specified rules to be exempted from the FLSA. Uh, you mentioned the FLSA is a federal standard, is it? That is correct. Federal statute applies in all 50 states to every worker in the United States. And where do the states fit in? About 29 states, as I last counted them, have their own wage and hour laws. Uh, And some of these laws are actually more employee-friendly than the federal statute. But it's important to remember that every single job in America is covered under the FLSA. It may be covered and then exempted under one of the exemptions, but every state uh, must have its workers comply and employers comply with the FLSA. That's a federal statute that applies in all 50 states. And what's the uh, mechanism for enforcing this? Well, there's several mechanisms for enforcing it. First of all, uh, the Department of Labor, based in Washington, and uh, there's uh, every state has its own Department of Labor, uh, is supposed to have trained investigators, trained employees to investigate uh, incidences of worker abuse. I like to call them employee wage theft because that's what it is. If I'm making an employee work 50 hours a week and I'm not paying them time and a half, and from 40 to 50 hours I'm paying them a straight time, I've stolen five hours of overtime from that employee. That's employee wage theft. And the DOL, the Department of Labor, and the state DOLs are supposed to police and enforce that. As you can well imagine, there's no possible way every DOL agent uh, can be in every employer protecting every worker's rights. So the the FLSA, as well as each of the state wage and hour laws, have provisions where private attorneys can bring claims on behalf of workers uh, in incidences of wage and hour violations. All right. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But we talked a bit about overtime. There's got to be a myriad of other types of violations. Let's say, for example, tipping. Yep. Tell us where the issues are regarding tips. Well, tipping is never uh, an isolated incident. It's looked at in conjunction with the base pay. For instance, who gets tips? Generally, waiters, waitresses, bartenders. Now, certain employers will only pay if the minimum wage is seven fifty-five an hour. Certain employers will pay their um, workers less than minimum wage. 
under the assumption that the tips that they generate will carry them over the bare minimum wage. They can't do that. Every employer, in addition to having to pay time and a half for overtime, also has to pay the basic minimum wage. So the tipping per se is uh, taking that into account is not necessarily a wage and hour violation, but if you take it into account and pay a worker less than minimum wage, that's a violation of another statute known as the minimum wage statute. Okay. And does the FLSA have any jurisdiction over the sharing of the tips or the, the shift manager taking a portion of the waiter or waitress's tip? Well, that's uh, two things. The sharing of the tips among employees, among like-minded, like-categorized employees, no. However, if manager takes a portion of the tips, if a bar manager or the uh, restaurant manager takes a share of the tips, that is taking a portion of the wages from the bartender or from the waiter or waitress. So the answer to the second part of that question is, in most instances, that is a violation of the wage and hour statute. However, as you can well imagine, most tips, especially in a bar situation, a little less frequently in a restaurant situation, they're cash tips. So proving how much was intended for a bartender and how much was actually taken from the bartender's tip jar, if you will, uh, is often a very difficult evidential uh, provision. All right. How about another area, and that would be the so-called underground economy or the cash uh, uh, method of compensation? In what way, if at all, does either federal or state FLSA uh, handle those situations? Sure, sure. Well, it's important to remember that there's no prohibition that I'm aware of against paying an employee in cash as long as you document the hours the employee way it worked and take out appropriate taxes and Social Security benefits and unemployment compensation. I'm assuming, however, by your question, you weren't referring to that. You were referring to actually paying an employee in cash. And let's face it, everybody and their brother pays a landscaper or a babysitter in cash now and now and again. But when an employer pays a full-time employee in cash, they are both violating tax provisions. Not, we're not here to talk about that, of course. Uh, but they also may be uh, uh, constituting a wage and hour violation. Uh, they may, if, if the worker who's working for cash under the table still works 45 hours a week, theoretically he or she is entitled to five hours of overtime, five hours at time and a half. The problem is, of course, the employee is not going to be running to the authorities because he's getting paid in cash, so he doesn't have to pay taxes. And concurrently, the employer is not running to the authorities uh, because he's not uh, declaring uh, the the wages as taxable business expense. And you had mentioned earlier that uh, either action could be taken at the state level or it could be taken outside of the state level by a private attorney. We want to talk about that, but at this point, we're going to take a brief break and we'll be back with Michael Galpern and we'll be talking a little further about some of the interesting issues and cases in Wage and Hour. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PI Now understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Well, 
Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters and our guest today, Michael Galpern, the president of Willig, the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, and a specialist in wage and hour law. And Michael, we uh, started to get into really the, the role of an attorney uh, when a client comes to you with what it would appear to be a wage and hour violation. Tell us what role you have, what the forum is, what the measure of damages are, and how how basically you can recover damages for your client, and how do you get paid? Sure. Um, First of all, it's important just to uh, state for the record that an employee who's the victim of a wage and hour abuse or wage theft does not need to hire an attorney if he or she doesn't want, but it's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea not to hire a lawyer. Now, why is that? It costs the employee nothing to hire an attorney because an inter- a case that is successful under the FLSA or a case that is successful under the vast majority of the states that have their own wage and hour laws, the attorney's fees are paid by the defendant. So in that instance, uh, the employee gets a full measure of back wages that have been taken from him, and in some instances, double the back wages uh, that are due him or her, and the attorney's fees are paid by the defendant in the result of a successful verdict or successful outcome. And I I have to assume that um, discovery and, and proving your case has some challenges. Well, it does. It does. And that's another reason that it's uh, never a good idea to go at this alone. Go hire an attorney who handles these types of cases, who specializes in wage and hour uh, litigation. He or she will know what questions to ask for from the employer, what documents to require, what depositions to take. The employer has to keep time records. The employer has to keep necessary documentation to justify its decision that an employee is exempt or that a, a employee is a bona fide manager. And if the employer fails in that regard, they can be held liable for those violations. Michael, the humble guy that I know you are, uh, I, I do want to commend you. I understand you were the lead counsel in uh, perhaps one of the largest wage and hour verdicts in the history of New Jersey. And uh, tell us a little bit about that case. Sure. You're referring to a case uh, that was, uh, it started out as Stillman versus Staples and then uh, changed the title into um, In Race Staples. But essentially... And this is Staples, the retailer, the, 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 the office big, supply. The, the big retailer. I'm not giving up any confidences because all of what I'm about to say uh, has been part and parcel of what came out in open court. Uh, Staples had um, classified many of their assistant managers as managers, as exempt from the FLSA. Uh, And they didn't just do this in New Jersey. They did this across the United States. We represented a group of approximately 5,000 assistant managers across the United States, uh, all of whom were part of the litigation in some fashion in the New Jersey courts. We tried the case for about nine weeks against Staples, and the jury found a couple of things. They found as a matter of law that, number one, Staples violated the FLSA, but they also found that Staples violated the FLSA willfully. And as I alluded to a few minutes before, when an employer willfully violates the statute, there's essentially a tripling of damages because normally the FLSA uh, looks back two years. You get two years of back pay. 
if the plaintiffs prove that the defendant violated the statute willfully, as we did in New Jersey, the look-back period extends from two to three years, and the amount of damages are doubled on top of three years. So, in effect, it's a tripling from the two-year damages, and that's what the jury did uh, in Staples uh, and awarded all the trial plaintiffs liquidated damages um, and uh, under the willful violation, and then there was a national discussion and settlement uh, with all the other related cases. Well, congratulations for that. We're going to sort of change course a bit. And oh, if boy. You've, if, you've, right. if you've listened to Workers' Comp Matters, which I understand you haven't. I'm a, I'm a huge devotee. and never <laughs> miss a show. <laughs> right. We have a, a feature called uh, Case of the Day. Oh, where, boy. Or, or in your case, Stump the Chump. Okay? Stump the Chump. Okay. And I'm going to describe an interesting case. And you know from your practice, interesting cases are by the bushel film. Absolutely. No matter Absolutely. when we think we've seen them all. But I'm going to tell you about a case in North Carolina. Okay. I'm going to describe the facts. I'll try to give you enough facts and uh, tell us what you think the result was or should have been. And this is uh, the case of Evans versus Hendrick Automotive Group. And uh, the case that went to the State Industrial Commission awarded, uh, was for an office manager who fell 25 to 30 feet trying to ride the railing of an escalator. Uh, following a gathering for dinner and drinks associated, like we're here at Willig, for the employer's annual sales meeting. The employer had provided the alcoholic drinks before dinner, had served wine during the dinner, paid for drinks at the bar following dinner, and a group of the employees, including the office manager, uh, began to walk back to the hotel where they were staying, and uh, the manager, the injured uh, party, climbed onto the escalator railing to ride it down to the next floor, uh, but because he was inebriated, he fell and suffered serious injury. The employer contended the injury was as a result of a deviation from employment and or that the injury did not arise out of or in the course of employment. So what do you think? Should uh, poor Mr. Evans uh, be compensated for his behavior of trying to surf the elevator or the escalator? Am I allowed to ask a question? You can ask a question. The, I may not the, answer it, but the, you can ask it. The injury happened in the hotel, not where the uh, event was uh, taking place, where the uh, employee was staying. Well, let me tell you this. The uh, employee lived in Texas, and it was a business trip to North Carolina. Gotcha. Okay. And that's probably more of a clue than whether it was his hotel or not. I would think that if the um, employee was staying in the hotel uh, as of necessity to make this business meeting, um, and I think that's that's more relevant than the employer uh, supplying the alcohol, that's also relevant. Um, and although the employee was acting unreasonably, if it's a workers' compensation claim, uh, the employee's negligence is not necessarily a bar of recovery. And in that case, although I, I must admit I'm not familiar with that case, and I do think it's a close call, but I think that the employee should have been, should have been covered under the workers' compensation claim. Well, you hit that right on the head. The trial court as well as the appellate court upheld an award, even though there was a deviation from employment. And the key... Uh, uh, fact in this case was that it was a traveling employee, and the general rule is when an employee is traveling on the employer's business, the injuries received while going to or from the hotel, even in 
a situation where there's some type of willful inebriation is not enough. Now, had this, I'm, I'm going to guess from reading the decision that had this injury occurred in Texas, where the employee lived and worked and was not a traveling employee, the result could have been different. But to- Totally agree. Well, I'm still a chump, but I'm not stumped. <laughs> Well, whatever you are, you're, you're a very talented lawyer. You're going to make a great president of Willig. And is there, um, if anybody needs to contact you, what's your contact information, Michael? Well, thank you for asking that. Uh, again, my name is Michael Galpern. I'm a partner at the Locks Law Firm. People can reach me at M-G-A-L-P-E-R-N at LoxLaw, L-O-C-K-S-L-A-W.com. Or they can get onto our website, www.lockslaw.com. Michael, thank you for joining us on this edition of Workers' Comp Matters. We hope uh, you and others will continue to listen to our shows, and we ask you to go out and make it a day that matters. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.